Genesis chapter 21, and we begin reading in verse 22. Moses, our, our author, writes, At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. A discussion between Dr. Susan Blackmore, a very outspoken atheist, and Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, a believer in the, well, transcendent, we could say, And during the course of the conversation, Dr. Peterson said that actually the Bible is one of the best forms of proof for the existence of the transcendent that there is in all the world, he said, because the Bible is infinitely deep. He said, you can take the most simple, the most straightforward of passages like Cain and Abel, he said, and discover that actually there are caverns of gold buried beneath such a story. And tonight our passage is in fact a perfect example of that point. It appears simple. It appears uneventful. And I'll confess before you all, I sat down in my study this past week, read the passage for tonight, and I thought to myself, what am I going to say about that to the people? And then I read it again and discovered a second layer of depth, and then read it again and discovered a third layer of depth until I was sat there thinking, Lord, there is just too much here for one, uh, one sermon. Should I be splitting this up into two or three? Friends, there really is a meal for us here tonight. And there is a solid rock on which to stand. Now last time in our study, it's been a couple of weeks, we we saw, didn't we, that God keeps his promises. And we saw that because at long last, Isaac had been born to Abraham and Sarah. It had been 25 years in the making, but there Isaac was. But the promise of offspring wasn't God's only promise 
to Abraham and Sarah. Back in chapter 12, God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so on the one hand, there's this promise of posterity. There's this promise of of offspring fulfilled there, at least immediately in Isaac. But then on the other hand, there is the promise of blessing. Blessing to Abraham, blessing from Abraham. And so we can really just simply label this message tonight, God keeps his promises, part two, because Abraham blesses Abimelech according to promise. And how great is it, church, for us to remind ourselves tonight that God keeps all of his promises. He doesn't keep one and then forget about the other. He doesn't keep 80% of his promises or 85% of his promises. No, no, no. God keeps 100% of his promises because all of God's promises are yes and are meant to us in Christ Jesus. They have all been purchased by his most precious blood. So I can now confidently say to you, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will always be with you. He will always uphold you. He will always strengthen you according to his righteous right hand. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ that purchased those promises cannot fail. Not in this world, not in the next. None of his promises can fall to the ground in your life. So again, God keeps his promises. And tonight we're going to see, number one, blessing requested. Number two, blessing received. And number three, blessing remembered. Blessing requested. Look again, friends, at verse 22 of Genesis 21. It says, It says, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Now, we first met Abimelech, didn't we, back in Genesis chapter 20. He was king of Gerah, and he took Sarah, Abraham's wife, to be his wife because Abraham had said, she is my sister. He was afraid, wasn't he, that the men of the land would kill Abraham, get Abraham out of the way so that Sarah could marry their king, Abimelech. But then God came to Abimelech in a dream, and he said to Abimelech, behold, you are a dead man, Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And that told Abimelech loud and clear, God is with Abraham. God is on Abraham's side. And as Abimelech re-enters the story tonight and sees Abraham, a 100-year-old, and Sarah, way past the years of childbearing, holding their miracle baby, the point was underlined to Abimelech again, God is with Abraham, and God is with Sarah. So he says to Abraham, Abraham, do not wield the favor on your life for my harm 
but for my good. Bless me, in other words, just as God has blessed you. Well, the promise, the blessing promised to flow from Abraham flowed past Abimelech and has flowed all the way down to us. It's come to us because God said to Abraham, what did he say? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's been fulfilled. Why? Because of Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. We get that blessing too. We get the fullness of that blessing as well. Why? Because Jesus was born. And Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, lived a life without sin on our behalf. And Jesus bore our sin in his body. And Jesus endured the righteous wrath of God against our sin. And Jesus was raised to life on the third day so that all of the blessing reserved for Christ now flows to us. And what are we supposed to do with that blessing that was given initially to Abimelech but has been given in its fullness to us? Are we to hoard it? Are we to keep it to ourselves? No, we are to share it because it was meant for all. In you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And so how can we share the blessing of God? How can we share the blessing of God that was given from Abraham to Abimelech all the way down to us believers in the Lord Jesus Christ by sharing the blessed one of God? That's how, by sharing the one who bought and provided all blessings for us. Friends, that's why we were not beamed up to heaven the moment we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is blessing to go around. It can't stay with Abimelech, it can't stay with us. It's got to go from us to the nations. But there's a challenge, isn't there? In Genesis 21. And the challenge is, would people come and say to us, I know that God is with you? That was immediately obvious, wasn't it, to Abimelech looking at Abraham? He'd had this miraculous dream, he'd seen this miraculous child. God is with you. That was obvious. But is it obvious that God is with us? Do we exude the blessing of God? Do we radiate the blessing of God so that, such that people would gravitate towards, towards us and say, give me some of what you have received? And the reality is, if our Christianity only really amounts to one hour on a Sunday morning and one hour on a Sunday night, I would say, friends, it is very unlikely that that would happen. But instead... If we are those who are abiding in the blessed one, then his blessing will flow into us. His life will flow into our life. His zeal will become our zeal. What did Jesus say shortly before he was betrayed and hung there at the cross of Calvary? He looked his disciples in the eye and he said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. 
You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And people will recognize that God is with us if we are with him. People will see the blessing of God on us if we abide in the blessed one of God himself. And you know, oftentimes we're tempted, aren't we, to lament how dark the world is around us. No, I'm not talking about October and the winter. I'm talking culturally speaking, morally speaking. But friends, what we also need to realize as a church is that as the world gets darker, there is a greater opportunity for the light of Christ and for his blessings to shine and radiate and exude from us. And yet if all we do is lament the sin and seethe with rage at the wickedness that surrounds us, then that blessing, I believe, will be altogether eclipsed. And it will be very unlikely for people to say, God is with you. Deal kindly with me as God has dealt kindly with you. No, the shining of his light through us, that may, that might well mean persecution, just as we saw this morning. Men hate the light because the light exposes that their deeds are dark. And yet, those who are being drawn irresistibly to Jesus Christ will gravitate to us because they see so much of the blessing of Jesus in us and in our lives. And that's the goal, isn't it, friends, of the Christian life? To demonstrate and to put on display the blessing that Abimelech received and that we received because we have been blessed in the blessed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. I was listening to a preacher years ago and he said that he picked up a, a carton of juice for a meal that he was attending and he was waiting in the queue. It was a really long queue and so he had nothing left to do but just look at the ingredients on the back of the carton and he noticed to his horror that there was actually no fruit in the fruit juice at all. So it was fruit-flavored, but it wasn't fruit-filled. And he used that as an application to say, if we are only Jesus-flavored, but not in actual fact Jesus-filled, then we're falling far short of what God intends for our lives. Friends, Jesus Christ is the wellspring of the blessing of God. He is the treasure trove of the holy happiness of God. And you abide in him and you watch that holy happiness flow into you. And that's what I want for us as a church. And so there's blessing requested, but then there's also blessing received. Look again at verse 25 with me. It says, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing you did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called 
Beersheba, just meaning well of seven, because there both of them swore an oath. Now on the face of it, everything in those verses looks upside down, doesn't it? You would expect Abimelech to be appeasing Abraham, because he took from Abraham what wasn't his. He seized what belonged to Abraham, but instead Abraham, the offended one, gave gifts to him. And because of that gracious gift, a covenant of peace was established for the generations to come and for the offspring to follow. Can I ask us, does that remind us of anything? You see, friends, we are those, aren't we, who have sought to steal the glory of God. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So we are without excuse, for although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We are those who receive every good and perfect gift from God and thank ourselves. We put our successes down to our competencies, our pleasures we treat as deserved rewards. We seize what is God's and we congratulate ourselves upon doing so. And God's response to that was to give to us Give to us his only begotten son. That's how God responded. As we seized what belonged to him, he gave us the most precious and costly gift that he had in all the storehouses of heaven. And as a result of that, a new covenant of peace was inaugurated in the breaking of his body. And in the shedding of his blood. Therefore, Paul writes, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then Paul writes this a bit later. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, Paul writes, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved By him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see what Paul is saying there. He's saying we deserved his wrath but instead we got God's love. We deserved God's curse. But instead we received God's blessing. We deserved hell. But instead we got heaven. Why? Because Jesus was given for us. Better than seven lambs. 
the one lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And having taken it away, a covenant of peace was established in its place. And friends, again, was that just for us? No, it wasn't just for us. It was for the multitude of men and women and children whom God chose before the foundation of the world from every tribe and from every tongue and from every nation. And the best way for us to commend the grace of God to them who are yet to be saved is by extending the grace of God to them. That is showing them foretastes of the grace that comes to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you the most un-British question that I could ever possibly ask you? How tight is your grip on the things that you have? How tight is, how tight is your grip on your money, on your resources? Because it's very often through those things, isn't it, that we commend the grace of God that we ourselves have received in the gospel of Christ. And if you don't find it hard to free, or if you do find it hard rather to freely give of what you had, could it be that it is because you are no longer amazed at what God has freely given to you in the grace of Christ? I could just say goodnight to those of us who are uh, or who won't be struggling this winter. How hard would it be for you to say to someone whom you know in the church is going to struggle this winter, hey, let me get December's energy bill for you. Let me cover that for you. Being the most generous person in your office, on your street, in your families, makes opportunities about the grace of God very, very easy. Because grace comes down to what God gave. And when we give, there is a clear runway to the opportunity to talk about the grace that saved us. A friend of mine, a business owner in the US, he lives in one of the most expensive areas of the entire country. He's done very well in his business and yet there were two years of his life when he voluntarily chose to live 24-7 in a UN refugee camp for Syrian refugees. So very little or basically no air condition, very little sanitary products or uh, hygiene products. Night and day for two years. What was the result? Ten people giving their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave everything he could give for these people. And how easy was it for him to say, let me now tell you about the God who gives, about the God who gives grace upon grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, lastly, this blessing remembered. Blessing requested, blessing received. Lastly, blessing remembered. Look at verse 32. It says, so they made a covenant at Beersheba, then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days 
in the land of the Philistines. What was the significance of the tree? Well, the tree was to serve as a reminder of the covenant of grace that had been established between Abraham and Abimelech. And whereas, friends, the most important thing for us to do in our lives is receive the grace of God, the second most important thing for us to do in our lives is remember the grace of God. But as Mark said last Sunday morning, that is hard. Why is it hard? Well, Mark reminded us, doesn't he? Didn't he? He reminded us that grace is difficult to remember because our world operates on the basis of merit. And of just desserts. Mark mentioned the need trophies at schools, uh, trips uh, for the highest achievers, bonuses at work, promotions at work, and on and on. Grace has nothing to do with those things. Nothing at all. And when we absorb that meritorious mindset into ourselves, the law takes the place of grace and all of a sudden we find ourselves hunched over an invisible burden. Because we recognize we cannot attain to a standard that exists outside of ourselves. And we, we sing, don't we? Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Well, it's all found in, in the grace that we have clean forgotten or worse by far, instead of despairing at the lack of grace we feel, We become proud and we become self-sufficient and we look down our noses. But friends, the grace of God is to be remembered as much as it is to be received. What good is grace if it is forgotten about? What good is grace if it is no longer amazing to us? Well, friends, God has given us a way to remember grace, hasn't he? It's called the Lord's Supper. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in, what's the word? Remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I don't know about you, but I need to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Because maybe I'm the first one to forget all about grace. I heard Tim Chester speaking not so long ago ago now about his most recent book, which is all about the Lord's Supper. And he made this amazing point that touch, the sense of touch can sometimes do for us what words can't do, that warm embrace, that hand on the shoulder, says sometimes what words cannot say. And, and he said, as we hold bread in our hand and as we hold a cup of wine in the other hand, the touch of God's grace is penetrating 2,000 years and is ministering grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and is saying what words sometimes cannot say. But since we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper every day, can I close with three 
really practical recommendations to remember the grace of God in our life. I don't want to get too allegorical about it, but as though it's our way of establishing a tamarisk tree to to remember our covenant of grace with our Lord Jesus Christ. Start by counting God's blessing. Do you know, in, in a few hours... We're all going to be in bed, not together. And, uh, and our minds are going to start racing out of control, aren't they? At the dozens of dozens and dozens of things that we've got to do this coming week. Oh, I've got to say that to that. Oh, I've got to text that. I've got to get that paperwork in. I've got to do that. But you know, an alternative instead is to recite to yourself as many passages as you can that minister the blessings of God to you. It's something I've started doing recently. And you just let your mind run through all of the blessings of God and you begin to count them up one by one. Recite as many passages as you can. But next I would say this, not only count the blessings of God, write the blessings of God. You write them down. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because as you inscribe them onto paper, there's very often a sense in which you start to inscribe them on your own heart. And you're that much less likely to forget all about them. I remember years ago, my sister buying me this gorgeous A4 Moleskill journal. And it's so nice. I didn't want to just use it for anything. And so it just lay there on the shelf for so long until I thought to myself, I'm just going to use this to write down evidences of God's blessing in my life so that I don't forget. And so that when I am discouraged and when I am losing sight of grace, I can open it up and say, yeah, God did that. And then God did that. And then, and then God did this. And then God did this over here. And all of a sudden your heart is full and lost in wonder, love and praise. And then I'd also say, lastly, share God's blessing. You count God's blessing, you write God's blessing, you share God's blessing. Because by telling them to others, you end up telling them to yourself. What did David write in Psalm 34? He said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. He said, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Abraham could say that, couldn't he? We can say that, can't we? Because the blessing given from Abraham to Abimelech has been given from Jesus to us. And we can count them, and we can write them, and we can speak them to others and ourselves. Amen. Amen.